This is God's word to you because he's your savior. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask as we come to your word and uh, uh, looking at at many uh, uh, hard things that happen in our world, we pray that you would help us to turn our hearts, turn our minds to who Jesus is. Open our hearts and by your spirit teach us that we would know and believe in Embrace and trust the gospel, that the gospel would be good news for us. It would be hope for us. It would be life for us. And so we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would open your word to us, that it would be our comfort, that it would be our joy. And that you would give us a joy that is unshakable, that is eternal, by looking at our Savior, Jesus. So uh, be our teacher now, and I pray for those who are here uh, who do not know Jesus, have not put their trust in him. I pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts to work in them faith, uh, that they uh, would know that he is God, King, and Savior. And so we ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen. So um, uh, we are looking at a a famous passage of scripture this morning, um, the birth of Jesus, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, and uh, I, this, uh, I want to take an opportunity this morning to just kind of use this passage to lay out very clearly uh, what is uh, the gospel. What is the basic thing uh, that Christians believe in, the thing that you believe in, if you believe in this, this is what makes you a Christian. You know, the heart of it. Get down, boil it down. I know it's a big Bible, it's a big book. Give me down to the, the very basic, what is the thing that makes someone a Christian? Christians believe a lot of different things, but what's the one thing that ties them all together? It's the gospel. And um, one of the core convictions of this church is that the gospel is not something that uh, just, you know, non-Christians or lost people need. That, you know, the gospel is something that you believe in to get saved. The gospel does do that. But the gospel is something that we all need all of the time. So even if you're, you're 80 years old and you've been a Christian your whole life, what you still live on, the food that you eat, the li- your life is still the gospel. So it's something you never grow out of. It's never you move on. It's not the gospels are kind of the ABC, the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian faith. Uh, the gospel is the A through Z of the Christian faith. It is everything. It is what our spiritual life is based on. And um, the reason for that is because the gospel is the heart of Christianity. Now, um, uh, what's troubling for many people about that, that Christianity, our faith is about the gospel, means 
that the basic thing about being a Christian is not something you do. It's something you believe. At, at the core of who we are, what makes us who we are, is not what we do, but what we believe. And, you know, many people will say, why, you know, why does it need to be that way? Why is it Christians say that if you happen to believe in this one thing about Jesus, then you're right with God and you get to s spend eternity with God if you happen to believe this one thing? It seems so arbitrary. That if, you know, why, why isn't it, you know, if you're a loving person, if you're a decent person, you know, why is it something that you believe that seems so narrow, Right? Um, but I'll tell you, uh, I'm, I'm going to speak to that throughout the course of this uh, sermon, but let me just say one thing up front, um, that anyone who has studied, uh, you know, psychology, human behavior, will know um, that the things that we do, the actions, the behaviors of our life, are always a symptom. They're always um, just an externalization of what's really in our hearts. Um, that fundamentally to uh, who we are, that we have, you know, certain emotions that cause us to do certain things, right, to act certain ways. And uh, underneath those emotions, the things that cause those emotions are even deeper down. We have de uh, deep fundamental beliefs about who we are and who the world is and who God is and who people are. And so at the core of who we are is not what we do. What we do is actually a very superficial part of who we are. At the core of who we are is what we believe, what we trust in, what we love, right? That's what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so to say that God would prioritize our actions, the things that we do, is actually quite superficial. <laughs> that God just looks at what we do. No, God looks way deeper. And, uh, and, uh, most fundamentally, um, uh, in the, it, it makes perfect sense that the Bible says that God's priority is not what we do, but what we believe. And so um, the fundamental thing that Christians believe is this unassuming little story of the gospel. And it's when we believe the gospel that the Bible says the gospel is like a little seed. You know, a seed is so, it seems so small, it seems so powerless, you know, it just falls on the ground. It says if that little seed gets into the core of who you are, it will germinate. And it will begin to grow roots, and it will grow up, and it will grow up inside of you like a tree, and it will change you, and it will bear fruit in your life, and it will transform who you are. It's this unassuming little thing, and that's fundamental what eternal life is, is believing it. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to uh, look at uh, that little story um, and how that and show how that little story tells us three things that are at the basis of what Christians believe. That Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, and that Jesus is Savior. That Jesus is God, Jesus is King, and Jesus is Savior. And the Bible says that when you embrace these three things, a kind of life comes into you that not even death can destroy. When you believe those three things, a kind of life comes into you that not even death can destroy. So these three things... We've got to look at them together. Uh, the first is this, that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, was God become a man. And now uh, you see this. This is one of the things Matthew's getting at in this passage. And he does it kind of subtly and then more directly. Uh, you first look, you know, Mary uh, is the mother of Jesus. She conceives by the Holy Spirit. So she's a virgin. And she's not married yet. Uh, she's engaged. And she's having a baby. And Joseph says, uh, Okay, I know how that works, so I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to go our separate ways. But an angel comes to, uh, to Joseph and says, listen, uh, God is doing something in, in your fiancé. Uh, she's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Stick with her, marry her. And then uh, this is what the angel says in verse 21. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yah, that's Jesus, you know, Seuss becomes a Greek word for saves. And, uh, and so uh, his name means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. But then Matthew goes on to explain the name, right? And he says this, look carefully, for he will save his people from their sins. So one he says, name him the Lord will save. For you would expect him to say, for the Lord will save his people from their sins. But he doesn't say that. He says his name is Yahweh saves, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the world. Yahweh saves, and he will save them from their sins. And what he's saying is that this Jesus is Yahweh, the creator of the world from the Old Testament, right? Very subtle. You say, okay, all right. maybe that's what it's saying. But then he, uh, that wasn't enough. He makes it even more plain as he goes on verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God become a man and dwelling among us. And now he's saying it very clearly, very plainly. This is what Jesus' identity is, is that Jesus is God. And so when we believe that Jesus is God, really that answers for us two questions. You know, on the first, on the one hand, it answers for us, who is Jesus? What is Jesus' identity? But on the other hand, it also answers the question for us, uh, who is God, right? So first of all, it tells us who is Jesus. And, um, you know, one of the things you'll see as we read through the Gospels, we're going to find again and again that Jesus identifies himself. He, he takes scriptures from the Old Testament that are talking about God, and he applies them to himself. And he says, I am that God, the God who created the world back in Genesis, that's me. And I become a man, and I'm with you, and I'm, in a, I'm among you. And... Uh, that, that's a shocking thing to say. I mean, many people who talk about Jesus in our culture or talk about spirituality don't realize how um, shocking of a reality, you know, what, what is Jesus saying? That I'm God. He's saying, you know, I, the Milky Way, um, you know, all those multitude of stars, I, I, I put them there. I orchestrated the whole thing. I'm the architect behind the Milky Way. Milky Way. I know it was a long time ago. It was before the universe. I was there. I did it. You know, Mount Baker, um, I took my hands, I kind of formed it with my hands. I mean, imagine someone saying that. Imagine someone coming to our church or in Bellingham saying something like that. I, he, I invented your digestive system. You, you all, I invented your gallbladder, and so you all, I demand your allegiance and obedience, your full obedience it should be mine. I, invent, I invented your digestive system? You say... You know, you are mad. I'm not going to let you volunteer in the nursery uh, if you believe something like that. And yet, that's, what, that's the kind of claim that Jesus made. And yet, not only his disciples who followed him and lived with him said, I believe that he's God. But a whole civilization for the next 1,800 years believed that that's who he was. A whole civilization said, this man is not mad. This man is not crazy. And anyone who reads the gospel says, this cannot be a crazy person. This can, th he, there's so much sanity. There's so much wisdom. There's so much love and compassion. You, I can't say this is a crazy person. So what, do I, what does that leave me with? He can't just be a good teacher. And, uh, you know, many of you know C.S. Lewis' famous, famous quote in Mere Christianity. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us, not have, uh, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
is not an option for us to say that Jesus Christ was a good teacher, is a good example. He's either mad or he's God and demands our worship. I think there's only one option. So on the one hand, the fact that Jesus is God tells us something about the identity of that man who actually lived in history. Actually, I, you know, I just want to say one thing. I, I, I just wikipedia Jesus just to see what came up this week. And, what, you know, I think of that as not a Christian. It's a very objective website. And the, in the first paragraph, it says, uh, there are no serious historians that believe that Jesus did not live. All historians believe that he was uh, a Jewish man who uh, grew up in Galilee, uh, was crucified with Pon by Pontius Pilate, was baptized by John the Baptist. He, if you believe, you know, if you think maybe Jesus was just a legend, no historians believe that. Here is a real man who claimed to be God. And that raises the question for us, who is he? His identity is God. But, but it, do it doesn't just answer the question for us about who Jesus is. But it also answers the question for us, who is God? Because um, it answers the question, what is God's identity? What is God like? The God who's the deep reality behind the world, what is he like? What, what does he think? How does he treat people? How does he view us? If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God become concrete to us so that we can see him, we can touch him, we can listen to him, we can understand him. And, um, you know, which is a surprising thing also to think about. Most of us, when we think about talking about, oh, what is God like? You know, how do you picture a discussion about what God's like? You know, there's a couple of guys at a pub. You know, you've had a couple rounds. What do you believe about God? You know, that's kind of how we talk. What do you believe about spirituality? So we're talking, and, and, you know, you're sitting back with the guys. You're throwing some darts, right? And you're like, you know, I believe God is energy. God is love. And, and you know, all right. Where'd you get that, you know? <laughs> I, I'm making it up as I go while I'm playing darts, right? I'm making it up. I'm speculating about it. And the reality is that actually all philosophy, um, all all, all everything that's been written about God outside of the Bible, that's all they're doing. They're playing darts, guessing. And, uh, you know, when I, I, I've shared with some of you that when I was a teenager, I, I got in a lot of trouble. I was, I, I was on drugs. I dropped out of school. I'd left home. And I got sent away to this uh, behavioral modification program for a year and a half when I was 16. My parents were, you know, my, my son's out of control. We got to do something with him. And then I came back to my high school, and I was a fifth-year senior. So, you know, I'd, I was a year behind. And so all the people in the class that I was coming back into, they kind of knew who I was, but not really. And so uh, a number of people, before they met me, they said that they had heard that this guy that was on drugs, and he got sent away for a year and a half, and he was a dropout, and he's coming back. And so all these stories kind of emerged that I was 6'4", with, you know, tattoos all over my body, wearing a wife beater and, you know, plugs in my ears. And, and they were just like, oh, Nate Walker's back. And then, and so there's this speculation. It's all guessing. But then when they met me, when I walked in the room, when the real person shows up, what happens to the speculation? <laughs> there's no more guessing. It's like, hey, guys. Uh, and they're like, you're the guy, you know. <laughs> You're the guy who got sent away? What's, what's wrong with you? And, uh, but this, when the real person steps in the room, the speculation stops. The guessing stops. And the real person speaks for himself. And what's happened in Jesus is throughout history, people have been speculating about who God is, what's he like. We're just guessing. But when Jesus comes and he speaks, we're hearing who God really is.
And when we find out what God's really like in Jesus, it's delightful. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And actually, I, I put a, a, a quote for you from N.T. Wright on, on page three of your bulletin. This is what he says. Let us suppose that this God were to become human. What would such a God look like? This is the really scary thing that many never come to grips with. Not that Jesus might be identified with a remote, lofty, imaginary being. Any fool could see the flaw in that idea. But that God, the real God, the one true God, might actually be like Jesus. And not a droopy, pre-Raphaelite Jesus, either, but a shrewd Palestinian Jewish villager who drank wine with his friends, agonized over the plight of his people, taught in strange stories and pungent aphorisms, and was executed by the occupying forces. In Jesus, we see what God is like. We know God, and he goes on to say, to say that Jesus is a God, of course, to make a startling statement about Jesus, but it is also to make a stupendous claim about God. That what the Jesus that we meet in, you want to know who God is? You want to know what ultimate reality is? You want to know what the meaning of life is? You look at this person, and in concrete words and actions, we find out who he is. And so the beginning, um, the first thing, the story of the gospel is, is about God becoming a man in Jesus, or what the Christ, or what Christians call the incarnation. Um, but the story is not just about God coming, but it's also about God doing something. You know, it's not just that God came and became a man, but God actually did something. And so that means that uh, it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is God, but second, to also believe that Jesus is king. Jesus is king also. And, uh, and you know, this passage that I just read to you begins in verse 18 by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, you know, I didn't grow up in the church, so I, I always thought Christ was Jesus' last name, and maybe if you grew up in the church, you thought that too. Uh, it turns out that's not what the original readers of this, how they would have heard that. Uh, Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. And the Messiah was the promised son of David who was going to come and be not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world. And so the first readers, the Jews, this is, Matthew's gospel was written to, to first century Jews who were either Christians or thinking about becoming Christians. And uh, how they would have read that first line is now, now the birth of Jesus the king took place in this way. I'm recording for you the beginnings of Jesus the king, that Jesus is a king. And... Um, and so when we come to the gospel and we say, what, you know, what, the basic thing about being a Christian is not something I do, it's something I believe. And I believe, okay, first of all, I believe Jesus is God. But also I believe that he's a king. What that means is that um, coming to trust him, coming to believe in Jesus is not uh, just something, you know, a mental, uh, okay, it makes sense to me logically. But it's also he's calling me, he's ask, demanding of me my allegiance. He is a king who also demands obedience and, and total authority over my life because he's a king. But not only, uh, not only does it being king mean he has authority over my life, but, but in, in the Old Testament, the king in the Old Testament that was expecting the Messiah was someone who was going to come and was going to heal the world. 
And there are actually many uh, Old Testament passages that talk about this king who's going to come and he's going to gather all the nations together to worship God. He's going to make peace with, with them. And, um, but I'm going to read one passage to you. This comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And it's a little long, but I'm going to read to you fast. And it's describing this coming king. And it says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So uh, someone through David's line. There's going to come someone through David's line. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or put disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall, uh, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his, of his loins. And then he gives this beautiful picture of the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. These, are, uh, these animals are, are actually partly maybe pictures of animals, but probably more pictures of the nations, that the nations are now going to be at peace with one another. They're not going to war with each other anymore. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young, uh, their young shall lie down together, and the, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This amazing picture, the Bible says, is the earth is awaiting a king who will bring peace. There won't be pain anymore, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And um, let me just tell you, there's something deep in our souls, deep in our kind of corporate human memory, that we have a longing for a hero who will come and rescue the world. And, I, you know, actually... Just yesterday morning, we, I was eating crepes with my kids, and uh, I was talking to them about a show that they watched called um, Avatar, The Last Airbender. And, you know, they, they're starting to watch shows that, you know, I, I can't keep up with all of them, and so I'm always asking them, tell me about the show, what's it about? And I know this is kind of a, you know, an Asian show. It's got all these spirits, the moon spirit and all these things. I'm like, all right, tell me about this. And they kind of know that if they want to be able to watch a show, they need to somehow show me that it's about the gospel somehow, right? So if I can show you it's about the gospel, and because what I tell them is, listen, every good story is about the gospel. It's about the true story. And so if it's a good story, it is somehow about the true story about the gospel. And so they say, well, okay, you know, and they're kind of working together, trying to piece it together. And so Will says, okay, first of all, there is the fire lord, and he has all these people who are bowing down to him, and he's really evil, and he's trying to get control of everyone. Satan. But Aang, Aang is, uh, is the avatar, and he is bringing peace to the world, and he's rescuing the world, and he's coming. And that's Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. And you know what? They're absolutely right. Here's an Eastern story. Here's a, here's a cartoon people not even made by Christians, but they know deep down there is a hunger in us that, uh, that we're living in a world where a hero is going to come and bring peace to it. And we have all kinds of movies, all kinds of stories with that's, that, that, that are, are hinting at a memory of that, uh, ch that true story. And let me just tell you, one of the things that tells us about um, the fundamental belief about Christians, you know, when it says the basic thing about being a Christian is not what you do, but what you believe, is that our fundamental belief is not just about my personal spirituality, but it's about the good of the whole earth. 
It is God is bringing his kingdom uh, to his creation. He's drawing all nations to himself, and he's making peace. And I'm a part of a big project. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that when I, you know, when I say to you, God is going to destroy all the evil in the world, you know, most of you think that's a happy thought, right? Oh, God's going to destroy the evil in the world. That's, that's a good thing. Well, why do you think that's a happy thought? Because you think the evil in the world is something out there, <laughs> something happening somewhere else. There's bad, evil people somewhere. I mean, it's something that we think that's, that's you know, what's happening in Connecticut. It's something that's far away. And actually, the stories about heroes coming to rescue the world, that's always how it is. The, the evil, the good and the evil are very clearly marked out. You know, you see, like, the Avengers or something, where Iron Man and, and uh, Thor and Captain America are fighting. Who are they fighting? They're fighting these ugly aliens who are coming out of the sky, you know, to enslave the whole human race. It's very clear. Oh, the ugly guys coming out of the sky trying to kill everyone. Those are the bad guys. And the decent New Yorkers are the good guys. And let's... <laughs> They, they should be rescued. So destroy the evil of the world is, is very clear. And let me just tell you, in Jesus' time, that's very much how the Jews thought. There's a hero who's coming, and he's going to destroy the evil people. And we know who they are. They're the Romans. <laughs> We've been living under their oppression. We've been living under oppression for centuries. And the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to stop the sins of the Romans and kill the bad guys. But the gospel turns that on its head. And you see that in this passage, right? Look at verse 21 again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not from the sins of the Romans. Not from the sins of the evil people that are, or the evil people, aliens coming out of the sky, someone else. He's going to save his people from their own sins. And that Jesus um, says, I'm not going to save you from them. I'm going to save you from you. And one of the fundamental things about the, the gospel is, the, uh, is that the fact is that if God is going to destroy the evil of the world, that's actually a little bit of a problem for me because I'm a part of the evil of the world. That uh, the Bible says that evil is not something that's out there. It's something that's in here. It's something that's inside each one of us. The line between good and evil is not between the aliens coming out of the sky and the decent New Yorkers. The line between good and evil is right down my heart. And so uh, that raises a question that it is, it is not just enough to believe that Jesus is God or even that Jesus is king. But we also need to believe ultimately that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is a savior of sinners. And uh, that's the last thing that the gospel tells us. How does Jesus rid the world of evil without ridding the world of me? Right? And uh, I, I think in a subtle way, this, the answer is in this passage. Because what it shows us is that Jesus' birth was a scandal. Right? Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, you know, a lot of people say things like, you know, in the Bible, in the back, way back then, they believed in miracles and they believed that virgins could get pregnant and stuff like that. Now we are living in a sophisticated scientific age. We know that that, that can't happen because we have science now. That, obviously, Joseph... 
is not true in this story. Joseph knew exactly how someone gets pregnant. And here's his fiance that he hasn't been with, and she's pregnant. He knows he can connect the dots, okay? And he says, all right, hey, I'm going to do this the right way. I'm going to try to be quiet about it, but we're going our separate ways. I know what's going on. And um, Joseph knew what was happening. And, of course, it was just God working in Mary. There was nothing uh, sinful happening. But to the world, it appeared scandalous. It was an embarrassment. It was Jesus came into the world into a questionable situation, uh, into what appeared to be a shameful situation. And this is the heart of Jesus' life, is he's the God, he's the king who came, who did not run away from scandal, he did not run away from shame and embarrassment, but he lived in it. He walked into it. He entered into it. And ultimately, the, the scandal that uh, Jesus was going to walk into was the scandal of the cross, where he was, had lived a perfect, righteous life, and yet he was going to die in our place the death of a robber and a murderer. And uh, he was going to die in our place. And he died the death that we should have died. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our embarrassment. He took our shame. And uh, the wrath, you know, when God's going to destroy the world of evil and he should be destroying the world of me, Jesus was destroyed for me so that I could be at peace with God, so that I could be reconciled, and and so that that would change my heart. And let me just tell you, as we come back to that beginning question, that the thing about who you ultimately are is not fundamentally your behavior and what you do, but what you believe, what you love in your heart. Imagine that this is what lives at the heart of who you are. A God who is rich, who is powerful, who became weak and took your sin upon himself and paid the price with his own blood for your life. Imagine that that's at the center of your identity. That's who you are. You are someone who's been bought by the blood of Jesus. You know, I, I maybe shared this with you. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. And I remember one time, I, you know, they had those magazines that tell you how much the baseball cards are worth. And I, I had this, I think it was a Frank Thomas rookie card, upper deck. It was in this plastic case with bolts on it. You know, it was worth the Beckett said it was worth $10, but, you know, I needed a security system on it so that no one would steal my $10. And I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, check this out. In my case, this card is worth $10. And he said, really? That, that piece of cardboard is worth $10, huh? What, has someone offered to give you $10 for it? I was like, well, no. You know, the magazine said it was worth $10, so it's worth $10. And he said to me, something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. And when we have the question of what lives at the center of who I am, of what you're worth, that the blood of Jesus was shed for you, your worth is in the blood of Jesus and that you have been bought with a price. And let me just tell you, where are you going to find self-worth? Where are you, where are you, uh, you, know, you going to have an identity that I'm worth something? Can you find anywhere else in the world a better place than here at the cross where Jesus' blood was shed for you? And that that would live inside you, that security. Where are you going to find security? That God himself would come and die for you. What is the belief that God says that would be at the center of you? Because look at this belief. When we believe that Jesus died at the center of, uh, 
died for my sins. On the one hand, it calls me to be profoundly honest about my brokenness. That the evil is not something out in the world. It's evil is something inside me. I can be very honest about that. But at the same time, I can trust that I'm deeply loved at the same time. I'm deeply broken and deeply loved. I can be honest and I can be secure at the same time. And so uh, this is the gospel. That Jesus is God, Jesus is king, and Jesus is savior. And you need all three. If he's not God, he ultimately can't give meaning to your life. If he's not king... He's not going to transform your life and, and call you to follow him and, 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 and demand your obedience. But if he's, not, uh, if he's not your savior, you won't know God's unconditional love. You need all three of these. And so uh, do you know this hope? Because the Bible says that this is eternal life. This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And God is far more deeper than to say that who you are is your behavior. Who you are is what you believe, what you love. And Jesus the King, Jesus God, Jesus Savior commands you, he demands of you, he bids you to believe and then you will live. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the gospel. That you are not a God who is distant but that you're a God that comes to us, that you're a God who's leading our world uh, to, a, a, to the kingdom, to a future of hope, and that you have not rid the world of us, but that you have brought us, even sinners, even those of us that we have evil inside of us, you made a place for us in your kingdom and in your family. Would this belief live inside of each one of us and live inside this church, uh, that it would give us life, give us joy, give us love, and stir in us a longing for the coming of our Savior, that we would see him again. And we ask this in his name.